0: This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and this episode is brought to you by my patrons. The show is really only possible because these amazing people online give me money to bring you free content every single week. So, this particular episode is brought to you by the patrons, Rebecca B. and Anthony A. Thank you so much. You are my personal lords and saviors, and I really do mean that. Like The money that my patrons give me, it really, really comes through and really helps every single month. I cannot describe, especially this year where my partner and I are having to do all kinds of repairs on the house and repairing cars and taking care of cats and all kinds of just, you know, boring, mundane, expensive adult stuff that has to get done and is approximately a billion dollars to get done. My patron funds goes to all of that. And so it really, really does help. And anyone listening who is able to offer just one dollar a month, not even the cost of a fancy cappuccino at a coffee shop. If you love this episode so much that you would pay for it, please consider paying for for it by going to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. There's also a link in the show notes and giving a dollar, three dollars or five dollars a month. Every little bit helps and it will grant you access to my patrons only show House of Heretics. All right. I think with all of that out of the way—oh, and also, don't forget to go to my Discord server. There is an amazing community there. There is interesting conversation happening there all day long, every day. We have a diverse community of mostly Satanists, but we also have some Christians in there. We have some garden-variety atheists. We have some pagans, people from all different backgrounds— and talking about all kinds of interesting things. And I'm really, really proud of the community that has been built there, an incredibly diverse and tolerant and thoughtful community there. And finally, if you haven't already, please subscribe to my newsletter. You will get interesting content every single week, assuming my house isn't collapsing that week. In your inbox, I write one article a week. So the most recent series of articles that I've written is about what I'm calling the Mott and Bailey of Christian belief. It's a kind of logical or argumentative fallacy that I notice a lot of my dear Christian brothers and sisters engaging in when pushed on the harder claims of supernatural belief, and I just offer some friendly insight into this trend. So if that kind of stuff interests you, then uh, please go check out my newsletter. Okay, all of that out of the way. Lucian Greaves co-founder and spokesperson for the Satanic Temple. Welcome back. Glad to be here. I'm so glad you're here too. It's been a while. It's been a minute. Sorry about That's that. Has it. I, I Time has, has
1: had no meaning for the past 10 years, I realize <laughs> now that we're coming up on 10 years since our
0: founding. That's true. Tell, okay, so since we are coming up on 10 years of Satanic Temple history, what does that feel like? Like... As as the co-founder of this absolutely fucking insane new religious movement, what are, what are your thoughts and feelings, if you have any, as we approach the 10-year anniversary? I feel like we should have gotten started sooner. I feel
1: like there was kind of a—in some ways, we started at a fortuitous time when people would better recognize the value in what we were doing. Mm. Um, we actually started during the Obama administration, so people still took it as— a real prank because they didn't see the the danger in the rise of the theocrats that we see now. But now that just causes people to say that we were a prank at first, but then got serious uh, if they're uh, taking our claim seriously now at all. But the reason I think we may have been better off getting started sooner is because we're in a situation now, I think, where we're pressing lawsuits And we thought some of the directions that the courts would go or some of the directions that the courts could go that would be too far Hmm. for our legal system to accommodate with a straight face is, in fact, the direction that they're going. And it's being more and more accepted. And, you know, we don't want to set bad precedent going into court, but we also have to fight for our rights. And it's really disturbing to see the lack of pushback that comes from judges giving us absolute non-secretary replies in their rulings or otherwise ruling against us in such ways that contradict precedent law as established by Christian nationalists looking for rights. And ours should be the easier claims because they're merely equal access claims. But we're also reaching a phase now at this 10-year mark and at this passage of time since the Trump administration that I think we're leveling off to a degree where there's more interactivity again with with the secular groups. I remember come 2016 was about the point where the Satanic Temple stopped working with Litigation groups, secular litigation groups like the ACLU, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, not because of any split philosophically with these organizations and not due to uh, unwillingness to work with us because we're us for any reason. Mm. It was simply because at that time when Trump got elected, I remember everybody's workload got to the point where I just kind of fell out of contact with the contacts I had in any of those organizations. And they were flooded with all kinds of requests for response to work on all kinds of different things. And now it feels like those communication barriers set by workload are starting to lighten up a little bit. And now we have uh, the ACLU interested in representing us in Virginia, where Mm. we recently had uh, a real witch hunt uh, precipitated by our application to start an after-school Satan club over oh, that's,
0: there. That's fantastic that the ACLU is is interested in representing TST and
1: yeah, and not that There has been a problem with our legal representation before this, but even our current legal representation had to admit that you know having the ACLU might get us treated a little differently in court again. Maybe it's Absolutely. in our best interest to have that kind of institutional support, at least it tells the judge that if they uh, r- rule in such a way that is going to be well outside of established legal norms, then a broader demographic than the satanic temple is is bound to hear about it and be upset about it.
0: Mm. It's really heartening to hear that. And yeah, so last night I caught the let's see this recording. Is on December the thirteenth. So last night, Monday the twelfth, I listened in to the school board meeting with oh, about after school Satan club. And holy fuckballs, was that a circus? <laughs> it was wild. Is it
1: just me or is that is it really difficult? Is it does that fuck with you? Does it like does Make it, you it feel a sense of it? like low level trauma for the rest of the night to watch something like that? I mean, it was in not my a case, good time. <laughs> they're bringing me up several times, but I feel like anybody who associates with us has to have some pretty uh, extreme feelings when they see the amount of meltdown that people have about us and their unwillingness to learn about us, demonstrated by the fact that even the people who actually read about us and saw what our words were Yeah, simply took the liberty of deciding that we were lying and felt emboldened enough to stand up at a podium and say, they say this, but what they mean is, and then they would say whatever they thought they should attribute to us.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely insane. And it's really demoralizing. No, like it is, it, it was not a good time watching that (laughs) it was it was not fun and i really only just tuned in for i don't know maybe 10 or 20 minutes and then it was like i'm out of here i i'm not listening to this but yeah it was it wasn't great and but all of the satanists and all of the members of the after school satan club who were present did a fantastic job and demonstrated an extraordinary level of calm and dignity and courage that I thought was incredibly admirable. So
1: yeah, and that's not easy to do. And no, I, I no, it is done before when we've done these kinds of things, but the people who stood up and spoke publicly at that meeting and at any of the meetings where people have spoken at our behalf, they really deserve our undying gratitude. Absolutely. It's essential. We need that. We need people to be willing to stand up locally. And they had that board meeting of the school board to discuss the after-school Satan Club without giving an indication of why this discussion was taking place. They weren't voting as to whether we would be in, in the school district or not. They already know they're trying to block us on any technicality they can possibly muster, and they couldn't find one. And they had the school board meeting only because... They wanted locals to be dissuaded from having any part of this. They wanted to be able to dox them. They wanted to be able to harass them. They wanted to be able to demand they put their full names on record and speak it out loud when they stand at the podium, and they're hoping that that will humiliate us or scare us into not having any part of this and not moving forward with our program. And our people stood up to that. They said, fuck you, and they went up and they spoke their piece, and they're still going to run the club under threat from these local ignorant slobs who won't who who won't be bothered to change their minds or to listen to what we actually have to say and that is not an easy thing to do and they're doing
0: it and again they they deserve our undying gratitude absolutely yeah i i completely agree with that And it takes a lot of courage. I mean, it is it is not easy to stand up in front of a room of people who literally think you. Oh, not. It's
1: not even easy to stand up in front of a friendly audience. Oh, definitely. And deliver your your monologue, and you know, much less an angry
0: mob. So that takes a tremendous amount of courage to do definitely definitely and i am i am planning on reaching out to the director of after school satan club to to do a follow-up to this conversation to actually talk about after school satan club but for people who who have just landed on to this podcast and has no idea what we're talking about could you just describe real quickly what after school satan club is
1: well we started the after school satan clubs to offer an alternative to other religious-based after-school clubs, in particular the Good News Clubs run by the Child Evangelism Fellowship, which they have in the school district in Virginia where we applied for the after-school Satan Clubs. And the Good News Clubs are specifically designed to proselytize to children, turn them into evangelists, and train them to evangelize to other children, and teach them a very fundamentalist Christian evangelist way of thinking. And as was pointed out by one of the speakers at the school board meeting yesterday, who didn't identify as a Satanist with the Satanic Temple, um, he was calling out the Good News Clubs and letting it be known that the Good News Clubs aren't these non-denominational Christian groups that just teach ethics from this kind of generalized Christian point of view, but they are very kind of specific and dogmatic in their beliefs to the point that they don't believe that Catholics, Mormons, and others are real Christians at all. So, this kind of framing of it just being, you know, either for Christians or Satanists or whatever is completely ill conceived. And we don't view the after school Satan Club as being anti Christian as it was presented by many people at the school board meeting, but honestly, as an alternative against proselytizing and, indo- and indoctrination. And so, It's interesting to see that the kind of people we're up against can't seem to grasp that there can be more than one concept in motion at a time. Yeah. So some of them picked up on the fact that we were offering an alternative to the good news clubs, which they interpreted to mean that we're only trying to disallow Christian speech, that we're we're setting up this option where... You know, if you don't have the Satanists, you can't. In order to keep them out, you need to uh, stop all religious clubs, and that—that's true. That's and that's fine if if that's what they feel like they need to do. Then at least we're still on equal footing. But in honesty, we you know we're fine being there, and we put together a curriculum that we really thought is the best for children who would sign up for the club. And you know, Malcolm, the other co-founder of the Satanic Temple, has. Friends in in education and consulted a lot of people, a lot of education experts on the uh, on the curriculum because we honestly wanted to have a real curriculum that would be enriching and educational for the kids. We we didn't do anything half-assed here. So whenever we run into these criticisms, we get these people all the time claiming that we have to be one thing and one thing only. So if we're offering an alternative to the after or to the good news clubs, then it's simply that we're there to mock the good news clubs and we don't care about children and things like that. Right. And, you know, things can be more than one thing at a time. And I really don't understand how to get that into people's heads sometimes.
0: Yeah. People have a really hard time like walking and chewing gum at the same time. (laughs) Or believing that anybody else can do that. So a criticism that might come from people who might otherwise agree with the Satanic Temple's position on a lot of things is wouldn't the present, and this isn't what I believe, but I can imagine someone saying, wouldn't TST's presence in a school be a form of proselytizing and isn't... TST opposed to proselytizing.
1: Yeah. We we are opposed to proselytizing, but yep. we don't feel that there's any purpose to conceal who we are, too. So if it's if it's too much in the way of proselytizing for us to announce who we are into the world and you know, and for children to actually know that we identify as Satanists, then then okay, I guess that that's too much for for certain people. But to my mind, you know we we want to do this and we want to do this because we're Satanists, but we don't demand that children involved in it be Satanists. They don't even have to be interested in Satanism. Um, we want them to trust that we're not trying to indoctrinate them hmm. into one thing or the other. And that's why we tell them we're not there to proselytize or offer items of religious instruction or religious opinion or whatever, uh, because that's just the truth of what we're doing. What's amazing to me also is how many people will get up to the podium at a school board meeting and say, they claim that they're not proselytizing, but, and but. Then they carry on to go on and, and, and with their notions of, of how we're going to indoctrinate children, their fears that we're free to indoctrinate children once we have fooled them into this point or whatever. And the fact of the matter is, is they're not understanding the argument at all. Hmm. If we wanted to proselytize, we could. If yes. we wanted to teach about Satan and Satanism, we could. We're telling you we're not because we're not. Yep. But the fact that we're allowed to do so is baked into the standards we have now. And that's exactly what the good news clubs are doing. So I think when we started, we maybe didn't anticipate the level of hypocrisy that would insist insist on only directing the questions towards us while completely being blind to the fact that every criticism they have that is misapplied to us is completely legitimate when you look at Hmm. who the good news clubs are. And that's what made it comical that a representative of the good news clubs was at the board meeting and he was just kind of saying, well, I know the Satanists are really annoying and everything, but but just just kind of chill out, you know. <laughs> Everything's fine here; nothing to worry about. Like, you don't need to
0: worry about this. Yeah, it's wild. the The whole thing is so interesting, and I think the responses that I find most disturbing and fascinating simultaneously are when people get up to the podium at that town hall and say, it doesn't matter what they believe, they being the Satanists. It doesn't matter what they believe. The fact is, Satan wants to destroy this town and wants to destroy children, and this is opening a portal to hell, a portal to evil, and it and this is an existential threat. This is what I call the Tash response, by the way. Uh, the Tash response to Satanism, which is taken from the Chronicles of Narnia by CS. Lewis, where Tash in this fantasy series, Christian Fantasy series is like the Satan figure. And at the very last book, the very uh, the, the seventh book of The Chronicles of Narnia, a group of like dwarves and talking animals, invoke the name of Tash for power without actually believing. That Tash is a literal being. And lo and behold, Tash comes. And the whole idea is that Tash still exists as a literal being, even if the people summoning him don't believe in his existence. So, this is what I call the Tash response the idea of, you know, Satan is a tangible, literal, evil force, the personification of evil, an objective being. And they and this group is summoning him and therefore our town is in existential danger and this that to me demonstrates how how the ways in which supernaturalism some forms of supernaturalism some forms of religious fundamentalism are by their very nature opposed to pluralism just by their nature will be where pluralism inevitably means an existential threat to humanity to the town to the children that is the inevitable outcome in their mind of pluralism genuine pluralism and therefore the only altern- the the only safe route for them is religious authoritarianism and that is the necessary outcome of their belief system. And I had a conversation with someone uh, recently, a conservative Christian, we were talking about pluralism. And she said, but Stephen, do you think that it is even possible for pluralism to exist? Is it even possible that it can work? And because it seems to me that, well, it seems to her that the only way a society can work is if they are unified around a single religious truth, a single religious cause and vision. And to which I was like, you're advocating for like that's a that's authoritarianism. That's religious that's theocracy. But the beliefs inevitably lead there. And so I I find that is what I found the most depressing <laughs> were the people who got up and said stuff like that.
1: Right. And and I do think authoritarianism is built into a lot of the teachings and you know they'll they'll say otherwise and you can uh and sometimes you know you you will find Christians who view you know Jesus or or their god in similar terms that view Satan because there's such a spectrum of interpretation on this. Yeah. But you know the first commandment is thou shalt have no gods before me and that's really contrary to anything we would teach, and we've always said, maybe Satanism isn't for you, and maybe we're better off if we all learn to accept that different people have different beliefs. But if you're willing to uh, give the argument its best chance and take out the supernaturalism, the idea, I guess, is that this kind of mythological framework that they refer to as Judeo-Christian um, is really the root of morality and keeps people grounded in uh, in certain ethics that prevent them from committing heinous crimes. And we hear that all the time. All the time. We people saying, you know, well, if you don't believe in the Bible, you don't believe in Jesus, what stops you from raping and killing, which is really bizarre.
0: It is very bizarre. Because
1: nobody tells nobody really needs to tell me not to do those things. I really just don't have some kind of burning desire to go out raping and killing, and I don't. But also, (laughs) we
0: we can have a moral framework without God. I mean, we can can 100% have a humanist moral framework and never bring the divine into the picture.
1: (laughs) Right, but their idea is that historically we've always decided to Categorize maybe even retroactively, like the uh, like the later efforts to stop slavery and things like that, as being attributable somehow to the traditional religions, even when they weren't at the time. The egregious offenses were happening; they were often attached to the religions themselves, and that all evil we've attached to Satan. So, and, you know, they their their thinking is that if you have people considering that maybe Satan isn't the bad guy in the story, you're advocating for the destruction and immorality that they've tried to attach to Satan all along. And that it really does a violent, some type of violence to uh, their institutional stability as a religion. If anybody could even consider a different perspective on the satanic narrative. And, And that's what they're, And that's what even a non-supernaturalist could be deathly afraid of, if they're really invested in the idea that morality comes with this one symbolic
0: structure and everything else is a road to decline. Yeah. You know, I just read a fantastic book. It was written in the 90s, but it's still, I feel, very relevant. It's called Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Rausch. And I've had him on the show two times now. But So I just read... Kindly inquisitors, and he talks about the three primary groups that are a threat to to free thought and free speech. And uh, one is the egalitarians, which is um, you know the group of people who say, "Well, we uh, we need equal access. You know, we believe that." Uh, evolution is wrong and creationism, seven-day creationism is true and we need equal access in the schools as science to teach this um, because that is fair, that is egalitarian. So that is one threat to thought. Uh, but then the other, the second threat, is the humanist threat. And he doesn't say humanist in terms of like humanist philosophy. It's more humanist in terms of protecting uh, hurt feelings and, uh, you know, to saying there there are words that are specifically hurtful ideas, scientific ideas, areas of, of exploration and literature that are particularly upsetting to some people, to some minority groups, and therefore they should be banned or discussion of them should be banned. So that's the humanitarian threat. But then the third is the fundamentalist threat. And the fundamentalist threat perce- is, is exactly what we're talking about, where they— I feel see a genuine threat to their power. I think a lot of fundamentalists apprehend correctly that if that if pluralism is accepted, that if there is a genuine exchange of ideas, that the light will be shown on the on the fragility of their entire belief structure and they have a perfectly rational motivation for protecting it. I mean, not I, it's rational on kind of a an unconscious level, I think. But it is. I think they're right to believe that if Satanists are allowed, you know, equal access to the public sphere, <laughs> to the to uh the town square, then that does destabilize their hegemony. Yeah,
1: and that that's what I was saying about. Giving their argument the best chance it has, and stripping it of its of its supernaturalism, um, because you know, even even stripped of the supernaturalism, they're going to have that problem with it. Where yeah. if they want that kind of institutional stability surrounding their religion, then giving the adversary a voice, or even letting it be seen by children that there are multiple interpretations of this in that some people can interpret satan in a positive way and and be pro social and productive people that really discredits a lot of their fundamental teachings that don't rely upon supernaturalism just this idea that this is the this is the glue holding society together this is the framework by which we can only base morality, and that it it causes all of that to come crashing down. So I understand that they're upset. But also, it's certainly not something I can apologize for because I don't give a shit about that. And I think we've seen a whole history of the destruction that's caused by blind faith in these moral structures to be uh, invoked for the greater good. They've often been used towards horrific ends. And I really think it's we, we are serving the public good by making people question these things, making people actually look at the values, making people look at what's actually being done in the name of these religious groups. And I think it does help kids to see that there are multiple perspectives in that to some people, Satan might be the epitome of evil, and to others Satan is the ultimate rebel against tyranny, and that's just the reality of the world.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of the final sentence in the invocation of the Satanic Temple, and I love it so much that I have it memorized, which is, that which will not bend must break, and that which can be destroyed by truth should never be spared its demise. And I think that the fundamentalists, and the theocrats intuit rightly that that is an existential threat to them. That sunlight being the best disinfectant is an existential threat to them. And and so that they curtail uh, free speech and free exchange. Um,
1: What's kind of amazing to me, too, is how much in the conservative press they've been advancing this idea that all we do is meant to create controversy so that we can litigate. Yeah. And I don't so much mind that perspective because we we do go into these situations knowing that there are going to be hostile, superstitious people, people entrenched in dogmatic ideas of what religion needs to be, people who support the theocratic agenda of the current wave of Christian nationalists. But it does seem rather disingenuous to pin that on us without recognizing that the good news clubs and a lot of these other religious liberty cases that have been pressed and brought to the Supreme Court were part of strategic ploys to actually bring these things to the courts and expand the boundaries of religious liberty. You know, that coach who was going out and praying on the football field He knew fucking well he wanted to go to court when the good news clubs started applying to put their proselytizing clubs into schools. They knew they wanted to go to court. They wanted to litigate these things. They had organizations like Liberty Council already lined up on their side. This is what the Christian nationalists have been doing all along. So at the point where we're just asking for equal access when the Christian nationalists have come in intentionally caused controversy, intentionally brought these things to court, and then we ask for equal access, and they start saying, oh, you know, these guys are just looking to cause controversy and bring it to court. It's a little bit infuriating.
0: I I really agree with Joseph Laycock in his book, Speak of the Devil, where he talks about how TST is often dismissed as a troll religion and it's because TST is a weirdo, spooky religion that doesn't stay in its place. It's almost like society is okay with weirdo, spooky religions as long as they don't assert themselves publicly, as long as they don't assert themselves in the public sphere in court. there's the That upends everything. And I think one of the reasons why Church of Satan was considered a real religion, quote unquote, whatever whatever the fuck that means while tst isn't is because tst is politically engaged and is motivated by its deeply held religious beliefs to be politically engaged imagine well what, i have
1: a different perspective
0: on that sure sure like, tell me
1: i feel like some people consider the church of satan to be real because they're not a threat because they're not they don't do anything yeah that's exactly what, no what i'm saying they say negative things about us but the thing about Considering the Church of Satan real, is ironically, they're not recognized as a church within the yes. United States, and, and we are. Yes. So we, we, we went through the test, and in federal court, it was affirmed. You know, we're a, we're a real religion. Our IRS standard is such that we are the 501c tax exempt church. And the Church of Satan is not. And I would even argue that the Church of Satan isn't even an organization. It's just a social media presence by now. But it, it is funny to see people refer to Church of Satan criticisms against the Satanic Temple by convenience when they have a beef with the Satanic Temple. And we saw Christians, or at least a Christian, doing that yesterday in Virginia. And it's like, Okay, you you'll take those the, the word of those guys
0: on on nothing but this. Yes, absolutely. I mean it's like I will be reading of you know whatever lifewire or whatever the fucking pro life fundamentalist christian website is. There will be an article about us and then they will fucking quote Church of Satan, you know, in an article from right. Church of Satan about us and I'm like you are Pro fucking pro life Christians, why the fuck do you care what Church of Satan suddenly thinks? <laughs> right, <are> you're <laughs> like, part of why?
1: the Leveian fan club now.
0: Yes, are you part of? It? And, and <laughs> but I mean, but no, I mean, you're exactly right, and that's exactly what I what I was getting at is Church of Satan stayed in its place, and therefore its quote unquote validity as a religion never needed to be challenged. And it's almost like there are these two tiers of religion. There is top-tier the quote unquote world religions, and that's like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc. The fucking big ones. And they all have several similarities. A lot of them have a holy book. A lot of them have various figureheads. A lot of them have uh, you know, physical meeting places, and a lot of them have economic and political power. But then there's like this whole substrate. Of weirdo religions <laughs> that, you know, the 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 religions that make the wasps uncomfortable. And that's the more new age stuff, that's the more occulty stuff, that's Satanism, that's indigenous religions, that's uh, you know, spiritist uh, and, and animistic religions. That stuff people seem more reluctant to to grant the same privileges of the top tier religions. And so it's-, it's funny to see people really upset at the idea too, that a group like
1: ours that is, is is authoritarian as it can be in an organized structure yeah, can also be a religion. And they, they get angry about things that they would be angrier about, us doing they'll they'll decry things we don't do that it seems like (laughs) they would be angrier about if we were doing them you know And, and i was talking about this earlier with june everett and the idea that because we're not teaching about satan at the after school satan clubs that this isn't this isn't genuine like if we're not if we're not trying to proselytize and this isn't religious and we shouldn't Call it the after-school Satan club, or admit that we're Satanists and other such things. Or, you know, they'll they'll say they don't really worship Satan because they're not killing children. And it was—it's just bizarre. Or the satire couldn't even write itself. Feel like (laughs) different things we say can be translated us into us not being a religion. Uh, I I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody quote something from our website or whatever, and then say, in other words, and then they'll say, uh, then they'll drop a complete non sequitur. Like, in other words, they're just trying to troll Christians. Or in other words, they're not really a religion. They're an anti-religion. I think, where the fuck did you get that from?
0: I don't even know what the word anti-religion means. like that. Whenever someone uses that term, I'm like, no, I'm I'm just religious. I am just right. a, I am just a deeply religious person, and my religion is Satanism, and my church is the Satanic Temple. I'm not anti-religious. I'm not doing this in opposition to anything. I am doing this because I am a Satanist.
1: So, well, a lot of the people now, at the school board meeting took to the podium and said, "Well, they admit they're not a real religion, and it's like." No. And I'm sitting there thinking, where the <laughs> fuck did we ever say that? we Nowhere. never said that. <laughs> Nowhere. We, we we've always maintained that we are a religion. Yes, definitely. So that's the weirdest part, too, is how often people feel comfortable putting words in our mouths
0: and then yeah. arguing that case. Yeah. It's a it's astonishing. It's stunning and demoralizing and fascinating to watch. But okay, so speaking of Christians, um, every time that you've been on the show for the past several months, someone on my Discord server asks the same question, and I just haven't gotten to it. So now is the time to get to it. So this is actually from my co-host on Patreon, my my, uh, Patreon show, House of Heretics. And he asks, this is Timothy McPherson, my co-host, I'd still like to hear the answer to what his friendships are like with non-Satanists. Does he have any? Are they close? What do they think about him starting this religion? And previous iterations of that question included, does he have close friendships with Christians or just friendships, acquaintances with Christians, and what are those like?
1: Well, I mean, that's kind and, of a—
0: And we don't need to delve into your personal life, by the way. We don't need to to get— <laughs> <laughs> to, to to interrogate your friendship and if this makes you uncomfortable we can just edit it out.
1: No, no, it, it's fine. I just I mean it's not really that relevant of a question to me. I mean I'll, I'll talk to people and things I I don't I just don't really have friendships anymore. I don't I don't go out anywhere. I don't I don't deal with people much outside of, you know, uh business. I sure. don't I don't want to have uh, you know, I hate to say it, but I don't really want to have too much, uh, uh, too close of personal ties, you mm. know, sometimes with people working in the organization. Definitely. Yeah. That makes you sense. Know, uh, yeah. Uh, Cause the, the dynamic can be weird. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, ever since, ever since COVID I've, I've been, you know, it's not so much for fear anymore of disease. It's just for a lack of interest in yeah. doing much in the way of, socializing and in, in groups or anything else really the biggest crowd I've been in since, you know, early 20, since before early 2020 was playing the satanic planet show in in August and I hadn't done anything that big hmm. uh, in the whole time before that and certainly not since. And, you know, um, on a, on the average day, I, uh, I don't see anybody in person. Yeah.
0: No, I mean that that makes complete sense. I think a lot of us are living in various forms of isolation and our only contact is with internet people. Just because of how COVID has reshaped the world. I still have contact with people in meat space, but that's because I work in retail and I have to. It's my livelihood. But meat space? Meat Have you never heard the term meat space? Is it like the new grinder? <laughs> <laughs> No, <laughs> Meat Space is uh, an internet word for the real world for for offline. There's oh I, okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah. There's virtual reality, and then there's Meat Space. Um, yeah, so you're basically just saying you don't have many Meat Space friends or or friends in general.
1: Sure. Yeah, right. I I mean, right. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that's
0: long <laughs> and short of it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I thought that was an interesting question because. I come up against the assumption that because I am a Satanist, I must be opposed to connection and friendship with people who might have theistic beliefs, supernaturalist beliefs, and that it's somehow impossible for me to have a good time with, say, someone who might be a Christian or someone who might you know, read their horoscope or whatever the case may be. Right. I mean, there's, you know, just have fundamentally different, different beliefs from me. And I, you know, I can get where that assumption comes from because the immediate impression of Satanism is that it's, is that only someone very antagonistic would call themselves a Satanist, but that's just not true. And that's not true for me. And so I have friends across the political and religious spectrum because i find a i'm i'm you know chill to a fault and i'm willing to hang out with anyone you know maybe maybe to a degree that might be unhealthy but also i've i find my world enriched by christians honestly i i they keep me honest the existence of of christians and thoughtful conservatives even they keep me honest in my own beliefs, and they challenge me in in thoughtful and compelling ways. And I find those relationships really enriching. And they enrich my Satanism. They don't they don't diminish it somehow. Yeah,
1: I, I was years ago. I was invited on WGBH, which was uh, which is a station in the Boston area where they do coverage about all kinds of things. And I think they wanted to talk to me about the early Black Mass event we had done at Harvard or that we were going to do. I I don't remember. It might have been that. It might have been something else. But it raised a free speech issue. And I was sitting back in the green room, and there was an old man back there. And we started talking to each other, and we realized that we were both going to be on the same program and that he was on the opposing side as me. And he had been an ambassador, I guess, a U.S. ambassador to the Vatican, which is its own nation. And that was fascinating to me. So I was talking with him about that. And I had spent some time in Italy and, in fact, was staying in a place just outside the Vatican for a time. So we were talking about uh, some of the local landmarks and things, just chatting about experiences in Italy and stuff like that. And we knew we were going to get on and argue with each other. And we we got on camera, and somebody, I think, from the ACLU or some other organization or entity was on. And uh, she, she was on my side and she was angry at this guy. And of course, you know, we held our disagreements against each other on the air and weren't compromising any bit there. Yeah. But as soon as the cameras stopped, she was still pissed off and she was going on about it and um he and i just started up the conversation again that we had previously <laughs> yes and you know went back to the the green room got our stuff and shook hands and departed and you know my thinking was is why not you know if if i'm going to be on the air you know i definitely want my opinions to be known i want my disagreements with you to be known And I want that to be informative for anybody who might be on the fence or whatever. But at that point where I'm not aiming for persuasion anymore, you know, why don't we talk about what we do agree with if we're going to talk at all, you know, like, Hmm. uh, I I mean, there people are more complex than that. Uh, There wasn't just one thing to the nature of this this guy. And, you know, I'm sure that, uh, well, I, I know I've seen that, Fundamental misunderstandings of certain things have a tendency to branch out to taint so much of what you do and what you believe. But also, there are probably areas of common ground where you can totally disagree about certain things and have productive conversations and other such things. And just having those kinds of dialogues might have more of a persuasive effect on the core issues. On bringing them to an understanding of the core issues that you're not discussing than, than anything else.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was talking about this on my patrons-only show, but I don't think I've talked about it publicly, where my college experience really, really prepared me for life, because I was coming out of the closet at that time, and I was really grappling with my sexuality, and it was a conservative Christian school, and I was a fairly conservative Christian, and there was so much intellectual diversity at this Christian school, a surprising amount. And so there were all some variation of Christian, but there were a wide variety of Christian theologies regarding homosexuality. And so there were some professors who were deeply, deeply conservative. They respected my intellect. They respected my journey. They understood. They listened to me. And they fundamentally disagreed with how I was framing the issue. And we had compelling and challenging, sometimes very difficult conversations that were ultimately incredibly healthy for me, helpful for me, because it sharpened my mind. And then there were other professors Who were 100% affirming, and they would invite me into their office, and they would sit me down, and they would say, "Stephen, you, you know, God 100% blesses same-sex marriage. He made you this way. I 100% accept you, and thank you for coming out to me." You know, and I had that full spectrum. I had that that complete spectrum of intellectual diversity when it came to this subject of homosexuality. That was so healthy for me. It helped me sharpen my mind. It prepared me for adversity later in life, taught me how to have challenging conversations, taught me how to, you know, persuade, taught me how to not lose my mind in the in the presence of difficult alternative beliefs. And I think it made me a better person. I think I'm I am objectively like a more ethical and humane person person now as a 34 year old because i had those experiences when i was in my early 20s at school and i was so sad when that college basically leveled the intellectual field by demanding that everyone on staff and faculty signed a sign a covenant that basically affirmed you know tr- bullshit traditional christian values that God, you know, made one man and one woman, and that marriage is between one man and one woman, and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And that homosexuality and and trans and whatever is outside of God's plan for humanity. That was such a tragedy. It, 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 well, it was a tragedy because it flattened, completely demolished that that intellectual diversity, that theological intellectual diversity on social issues.
1: Well, I did something last week that I didn't dare do before because I was trying to be more cautious in this fraught cultural moment of polarization. But on Twitter, some fellow just tagged me in a comment or commented on something I tweeted saying that my cult and I were about to end and all this kind of thing. And it sounded vaguely threatening and he seemed like a conspiracy theorist, but it was really... was just this really angry tweet that seemed to come out of nowhere yeah and i just replied to him and said you know i'd like to talk to you on my patreon and (laughs) then he he replied and he said yeah sure let's do it and then we exchanged a couple dms where it was just like you know when and how and then i got him on zoom and recorded it and talked with him half an hour i didn't edit any of it i really when did you post post it
0: when did it come out i didn't see it
1: uh, just just this past week, I okay. think it's the post. It's probably three posts down now. Okay. The guy's name was Mo, and uh, the, the the thumbnail image is of the original tweet he had sent me. But the reason I was disinclined to do that before is because, and this is what made me nervous when I was speaking to him. He, you know, feels that homosexuality is an ideology. And he feels that it's an ideology that's gained such a foothold into culture that now they're indoctrinating children into homosexuality and that kind of thing. And I've heard this kind of rhetoric before, and I thought that it was quite possible that people listening would get very angry if I didn't immediately start screaming at him and crying and telling him that he's literally killing you know, people in the LGBTQIA plus community and other such things. And that if I didn't express enough hysterical loathing towards his viewpoint, people would decide that I was endorsing his viewpoint or that I didn't care enough. Yeah. And I I didn't feel like playing that game. So I gave him the opportunity to explain where he was coming from or what he was thinking and I posed questions to him and and we kept the dialogue civil, even though unresolved. And in some cases I felt a little nonsensical, but, you know, to the credit of my audience and to the credit of anybody else who listened to it, I didn't hear any of that pushback. I didn't see anybody growing hysterical about me giving a platform yeah. to a raving conspiracy theorist in in, in a way that. Uh, would suggest that I was endorsing his point of view because I I feel like those arguments would have always been disingenuous, but it hasn't stopped people from making them. And I I was really happy to see that there was so far in, in the comments I received, people said it was really interesting. They're really glad I did that kind of conversation. They want to hear more of that kind of thing. And you know, I, I did reach out to another guy because Twitter's turned into a real shit show since Elon Musk oh, go God, and it's been anything goes, and I've, I've seen a lot a more in the way of people just hopping in the comments and yeah. and trying to say really bombastic things, but somebody running for the school board in Virginia sent me a warning on Twitter that I, I was not to come to, to Virginia because he's at war with me, right. and I, I'm sure it was in all caps or whatever, and because he was running for the school board, I also reached out to him and said, you know, let's let's talk about this on my Patreon. And it, it seems like he he backed out of that. But I thought it would be I thought it'd be an interesting thing to do. And I do want to speak to more of my opposition, but I don't want to be held to this standard where if I'm not giving you know, I, I don't want to be the satanic Tucker Carlson where I don't have you on to explain your stupid point of view. but I have you on so I can yell at you and tell people my interpretation of your point of view. There's just no point in that. I don't think people are going to listen to these people and be persuaded. I think we should listen to these people and give their argument the best chance it has because it's still stupid even then. But then you're better equipped to face these arguments in the future, or you're better equipped to understand the mindset of our opposition. You have to know what our opposition is thinking in order to be able to argue against them at all. And I really do fear that we're in a in an environment now where people refuse to do that and they're getting to the point where they're arguing claims that nobody's made.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I struggle with this so much because it's like on the one hand, like you said, I don't want to be Tucker Carlson. I don't want to, to or, you know, there are any number of lefty content creators who essentially do the same thing. And I don't want to be that guy. At the same time, uh, I don't want to be Joe Rogan where there is such a thing as sloppy interviewing. <laughs> you know, there is such a thing as irresponsible interviewing. Oh yeah, interviewing. Absolutely. you you and, have
1: to challenge people on the facts, but you have yeah, to and, but, but, you, I, but you have to get down to what the factual claims are a lot of times. When somebody are at the point where somebody's arguing for the idea of a homosexual agenda yeah. that creates homosexuals. I, I feel like the best I can do is just interrogate people's beliefs as to why that's there. Yeah, You know, why, why do you think that that's why people are gay? Right. Yeah. Like explain that to me, I- explain where your actual, where, where your actual facts are, what those claims are. And then we can measure those, you know, and at the point where you have claims that are just kind of ridiculous and you're at that kind of stalemate where you're like, well, that's just obviously not true, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. At some point where you might just have to agree to disagree and understand that any reasonable listener will know that you're full of shit. But I, I do agree with you. Doing those kinds of accommodating interviews where you're going to have somebody just spouting non-scientific nonsense without pushback and yeah. saying, well, that, that's a very, that's very interesting. Oh, I'm how, just asking questions. Exactly. Here.
0: And and so, you know, this is something that I just, I struggle with so much and, and I think part of the reason why I struggle with it is because I'm, I'm not a professional journalist. I'm not a professional interviewer. Well, I guess I, you know, I technically make money doing this, but still, you know, I'm, I'm f- pretty amateur and, and yet I firmly agree with you. I worry that neutral spaces in our culture are diminishing. And by neutral, I don't know what the best term is for it, but places where people can actually encounter each other's ideas. And it's always so startling to me when people in various political silos become shocked and demoralized, feel shocked and demoralized by the beliefs of others. And I'm like, because something happens. Trump wins. I mean, that was shocking and demoralizing. But, but, or, or a recent example, the knockdown of Roe v. Wade. And it's always so interesting to me when I watch my fellow lefties respond to this not just with adequate horror and grief, but with surprise. And and I think that surprise is there because we just don't talk to each other. We don't know what, what the other side is thinking. And this has all sorts of horrible ripple effects. One is that we don't keep each other honest. <laughs> we don't, ke- you know. I need some, you know, moderate conservatives in my life to keep me honest because when left my own devices, I I go into, you know, I can go into the furthest reaches of ex of, of you know extreme lefty bullshit radicalism, and that's where I'm most comfortable. But the problem is that. Every human being is prone to irrational, unscientific groupthink. And that's true of everyone, left or right. And so having someone there to push back against me, i.e. a centrist or a conservative, that's, that's good for me. That's healthy for me. But the other thing is, if we don't have those spaces of conversation, if we don't have those places where we can, in a measured way, hear out what another human that we share this planet with believes— then we don't have any distress tolerance for when we do encounter opposing beliefs. So when people go home for Thanksgiving, the one of the reasons why the holidays are always such a disaster is because we haven't been practicing distress tolerance for the rest of the year. We don't have those antibodies within us that give us resilience against opposing beliefs. So instead of you know sitting there across from your crazy uncle or whatever and not having a an elevated heart rate whatsoever because you are inoculated and you can handle it instead we lose our goddamn minds and the reason is because we aren't fucking talking to each other and i really just don't see any other alternative politically and socially to actually talking to each other. And that doesn't mean all of us have to do it. And that doesn't mean that we have to do it all the time. And it doesn't mean that we should talk to the most radical fringes either. But I think that genuinely the only alternative to talking to each other is fighting each other. It's like one or the other in the long run, (laughs) you know, like, and I just don't see any way around that. And so So I, yeah,
1: if I had, if I had, friends right
0: uh, <laughs> in that it's somewhere out in the multiverse in in another dimension in another timeline where lucian Greaves has friends
1: right well i mean to a certain degree i don't feel like i really have the latitude to have friends in the same way that because i i don't i, I refuse to to let people to in i, I refuse sure. to let people know personal details about me i i've been i i've been so flooded with with threats and things like that, that you know, I don't, I don't have people over where I am. Like, and I have, too, I have too much experience with people not taking things seriously and not meaning any harm, but still giving away too much and putting me in danger. Or, you know, I just don't want to have to to move or or whatever. So deal, deal with. I've become pretty isolated, and I, I don't, and and so that's that's the way in which I, I don't. I don't have friends. You know, I just don't tell people like uh, any of my private details anymore or anything else because uh, people also the dynamic changes when you g- gain a high profile and definitely people kind of uh trade and and gossip and things like that. I just don't do it. But if I did have friends, Carrie Poppy would be one of them and she does a popular podcast Ono oh Ross and Carrie and I have to put in a plug for her just to mention that as far as people who seem to manage those dialogues really well by hearing somebody's point of view, giving them their best opportunity to describe it, and interrogating those points of view and trying to get them to think differently, you know, not pulling back on her pushback, but presenting these things as legitimate questions that could get them to think deeper and maybe change their mind. She has done an excellent yeah, job. She's one of the best some of her interviews. And
0: uh, also I was just texting with her before we <laughs> before we started recording and she says, "Hi Lucy." <laughs> when I told her that I was about to record with you. No, she's she's great. She's she's a master at that. I agree. And also, you know, for what it's worth, I consider you a podcast friend. Maybe, you know, we get on here on a podcast, we do a show together, we chill. I consider that a kind of friendship. So, for what it's worth, you're a podcast. I do friend. too. Uh, yeah. I,
1: I totally do. I just, I just, sometimes I just feel bad on what I won't do with and, and oh. how I won't interact with people
0: sometimes. Yeah, there's no, yeah, no pressure to interact whatsoever. I, <laughs> I consider you, I consider you a podcast friend. We have good times while recording. Um, yeah, you know. I want, I want to cultivate a space within my community and on this show where people can talk to each other because I genuinely, and also, you know, this is another example that I bring up, and this is maybe the biggest and flashiest example of the power of conversation, but like it's just one of dozens that where I have I have seen the power of conversation really, really transform people. And I don't tell this story to be self-aggrandizing because it wasn't me who did this. It was me and a fuck ton of other people. Um I told this story a week or two ago on my episode with Jonathan Rausch and I'll tell it again. I Back in 2012 and 2013, I was involved in gay activism in the church. And by gay activism, I mean I was engaged in writing as passionately, as truthfully as I could, the stories of abuse. In the ex-gay world. For people who don't know, ex-gay is basically, you know, Christian conversion therapy, trying to change people from gay to straight, which is what I experienced. I never went to a formal conversion camp, I never went to a formal therapist, but I was immersed in that world, uh, went through deliverance ministry, went through exorcisms, did all the prayer, etc., etc. And so I wrote a lot and talked a lot about the harms of this practice and just how destructive it was. The flagship ex-gay organization was called Exodus International. Then they'd been around for decades, and they were the most powerful ex-gay organization. They were global. They were an umbrella organization under which all of the other little ex-gay therapists and organizations and local groups were uh, were organized. And I had a conversation with Alan Chambers, the president, and hundreds of other people did. Doesn't, I don't know how many, but so many. And Alan Chambers, the president of Exodus International, eventually came to see the harm that ex-gay practice was doing to gay people that ultimately no one really changed their orientation. He admitted that publicly. And then after hearing these stories and having these conversations, he shocked everyone by closing Exodus International. And that's, that's the power of conversation with people who are deeply opposed to you in some fundamental ways. <laughs> and I know that I sound Pollyanna-ish and I sound overly idealistic about the power of conversation, but it's like, I'm sorry. After experiencing what happened with exodus international exodus international did not close because of underhanded bullshit trying to cancel exodus international trying to take it offline trying to i mean there was some of that but ultimately at the end of the day exodus international closed because we fucking talked to each other
1: right and it was and you were available to that kind of inquiry and the the thing is is i I've, i started reading this book it uh, just came out and it's an empirical study of autocracies uh revolutionary oh, what's autocracies it which one it's is it? called revolutions and dictatorship and it's it's pretty dense who, in academic who, 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 i think for who is most it? readers uh it's co-authored two uh two authors and I, I i'm sorry i forget the names but it, it's a new book it's among the new releases it's a really thick book but it has so many footnotes and not so actually there's not a lot of footnotes but there's there's endnotes in fact i think they consigned it all to endnotes and there's appendix so um i believe you know it's uh i believe it's around 400 pages and it's in its core text but it it looks like it's about 600 pages long on the shelf because those pages are made up by the notes and, and appendix and everything but it, I'm reading this after reading several books about uh human rationale and uh and I've read uh on your recommendation, I read Raush's Constitution of Knowledge.
0: Oh, how did you like it? I, I love it. And
1: there's yeah, it's, you know, and been wonderful. reading books about reasoning and and uh and polarization and things like that. And after you read Several books on the topic. It's one of those things where you begin seeing things more and more through this kind of analytical framework that's been given to you by you know the academics working on studying these things. Of course, mm. but reading about the autocracies, you know what's common amongst them is their biggest failures are always due to uh, trying to boost production metrics and then being lied to because the uh, consequences are too strong to do otherwise and gaining a completely delusional idea of what's going on on the ground mm. while you know Mao's big leap forward people are starving and you know there's there's this massive famine people dying and he's trying to get steel production up by putting these you know miniature furnaces and villages yes. and having people do this work that's ultimately yielding nothing useful but people are dying while they're still exporting grain that they could be using and things like that but there isn't free communication and there's there's fear amongst them that you know bringing up this kind of you know the the failures of the program will lead to them being purged from the party meaning killed or whatever else and it was similar of course in the soviet union and you know even if people saw chernobyl They could see that a lot of the problem was that they were made to run these tests and do other bureaucratic things and, you know, were lying about the results or pushing things forward before they were ready. And, you know, they just weren't available to that kind of discussion. And if you don't give people that kind of flexibility, you get those, that disaster, those kinds of disasters, even on the more microcosmic scale, you know, you begin to see just how in social interactions, how devastating it is when people are afraid to bring up ideas that they're afraid they'll get pilloried for or to be revealed as somebody who had, you know, a disagreeable point of view at one time and even changed their point of view, you know, which is something we see now too where people are being held accountable for things they either believed before or, or never believed, but we're using a type of language that was, you know, more uh uh, that was interpreted differently at a, at a different time, or whatever. And if you just don't give people flexibility to change their viewpoint, you're you're not going to win because yeah. you're 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 never going to you're you're, you're never going to win them over. And in fact, you're saying that they cannot be won over. You're you're insisting that they stay on the other. You're insisting on keeping an enemy rather than growing your own ranks. Yeah. If you don't let people come to your point of view, there's
0: certainly no point in arguing it. A week or two ago, I did a second interview with Jonathan Rausch. and it was a bit nerve-wracking to do because it was about an essay that he wrote, which featured me for Sapir Journal. And Yeah, I
1: saw that. That was that was amazing. And then that, I, I saw that article. Just soon after I finished The Constitution of Knowledge, which you know, so it's such a great book.
0: Oh, it's it's and, to uh, me, yeah. it's a to me, it's a deeply satanic book. To me it and, and then also it's it's very much a sequel, by the way, to Kindly Inquisitors. And I'm really glad I read Kindly Inquisitors. I just finished it and it's fabulous. But it is deeply satanic because it's anti-dogmatic, yes. and it's and it gives you the
1: tools to genuinely explore dogmas in a productive way, not just in a simply in a simple I don't like it contrarian way or this is what's popular in pop culture or this is what's believed by the majority of people. so I reject it and take the uh, yep. the minority view, but really trying to come to come to understand issues and understand them better by exploring the counterfactuals, exploring every criticism against it. And being available to do that and that availability to do that is what's under such assault. And I really feel like it is part of the satanic ethic Mm. not to just take a contrary point of view for its own sake, but to really interrogate things from all angles to better, to best understand it as you can and have the tools to argue for the
0: point of view that you hold on completely rational terms. Yeah, yeah, and I just find the Constitution of Knowledge, the book, incredibly resonant with the seven tenets. I mean, I feel like the the seven tenets are all there, represented within the Constitution of Knowledge. The no, the rule of no final say, the rule of fallibility, the you know that we are fallible human beings, and no one has a final say on truth. The, you know just all of these principles um the you know the need for compassion the need to you know the the importance of scientific knowledge bodily autonomy just all of these core things i i just find it an extraordinarily satanic text but i mean so yeah all that all that aside a lot came into focus for me in that last conversation with jonathan because Basically, what he described in that essay for Sapir and in our conversation is how essentially a small group of what I can only call epistemic terrorists make the rest of us terrified of speaking our minds, of saying—and I don't mean speaking our minds in terms of, you know— saying, you know, the horribly racist things that are, you know, deep in our white hearts. No, not that bullshit at all. I mean just speaking our minds of doubts and questions that we have about prevailing orthodoxies that might get us in trouble. And how they these people there they are a minority, people will often use the fact that cancelers are a minority against the claim that cancel culture even exists. People will say, "Oh, you know, cancel culture doesn't exist. It's only a tiny number of people who do it." And Jonathan Roush's point is, yes, it's a minority. In the same way, it's always, very often, a minority that do the worst damage, and they take up they they take up lodging in our skulls, and they become a form of epistemic terrorism. Epistemic terrorists and like terrorists, they are a tiny minority that has an outsized impact and terrorizes the majority. And Rausch describes how, you know, there are more people who self-censor and are terrified for their livelihoods if they say what they think today than there was during the Red Scare. That is an absolutely fucking insane Statistic, and he says the reason why more people are scared is because during the red scare, at least you knew what would get you in trouble. It's like, don't be gay, don't be a commie. That was it. Today, I've seen you don't know.
1: I've seen people pose questions before and get really dogpiled on that it were questions I was legitimately interested in the answer to, that I was not. That I that I didn't take as being even presented as intentionally provocative, and that's what scares me. Same, like, uh, same. It's when scary when the statisticians pointed out that uh, during the the George Floyd protests that you know Republicans usually gain in an election year when there's unrest on the streets, and, and he ended up fired. I uh, I thought it was just. It was just lucky I guess that I didn't tweet something similar because I knew those studies I knew the numbers on that and it, it, it and I just didn't think that that was something that would be interpreted as being uh, uh against the cause that the protests were trying to support it was just it was just a fact it was something to be aware of right like yeah. So that that was one of those points where I was completely uh, I felt a little bit crippled, you know, and that's why I feel like I didn't even do the kind of uh, uh, recording uh, I did until last week for s- such a long time, because there, there really are things I avoided. And to be honest, like uh, I, at some point, Richard Dawkins tweeted about uh, Rachel Dolezal and said you know something about respecting transracial identity and and i wasn't sure i mean it, it, you know people said that this was him being uh transphobic whereas you know my immediate res- my own response when i first read that that he had said that was i just wondered okay is is transracialism a thing like i i don't i don't i don't know like i I don't I don't know what her experience is. I guess she grew up in a black family, if I understand correctly. And I, I, there were a lot of factors, maybe. But I, I don't know. To I, I'm just not that certain to what degree I can or cannot take a claim of transracialism. So my own instinct is to is to at least respect that claim a little bit. I mean, yep. if she I, I don't. I, I I mean even even mentioning it to you now I have no idea if somebody's going to be really pissed about that or whatever but I'm just saying I don't know and because I don't know doesn't mean I don't know because I have malice towards anybody.
0: Yeah, ignorance and malice are just not the same thing. You know, another example is take um you know responses to JK Rowling. There are ways in which I can 100% see how what she said is really hurtful and really offensive i was talking to someone recently though because i'm currently reading her Kormor and strike series which is her her new um detective series and it is very well written and you know i mentioned this to a friend of mine and i was just like you know jk rowling she has such an incredible she has such an incredible grasp of 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 just evil, just bad people in her books and she 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 gives such life to just bad bad people and my friend said, "Well, that's because she's evil. She is evil and therefore she can write evil really well because she's a transphobe." And I'm 100% willing to say that I think that she has handled the trans issue wrong at the very at the very best. I think that she has demonstrated an extraordinary level of callousness to a group of people who could really use her help, right? I, and I don't think that she has demonstrated that. I, I'm not willing to call her evil, though. I can understand where someone like J.K. Rowling is coming from on a few of the issues. And saying that... Is simply too terrifying, and there are going to there are people right now. I mean, there are. I've in fact, I've talked to them. I have been one day. This happened. Literally, this happened. I was at a grocery. No, I wasn't at a grocery store. I was at a cafe, and a little old woman was sitting next to me reading a Cormoran Strike novel by J.K. Rowling, and we started talking about the book, and she could not comprehend the issues surrounding J.K. Rowling she She just couldn't get it. she She had no idea what the controversy was about with j. k. Rowling and and her transphobia. There are so many people who are being shut down, who genuinely have questions and not in the cynical Twitter just asking questions way, but genuinely, they don't get it. And that just creates an incredibly toxic atmosphere. That just creates an incredibly toxic
1: Sometimes, though, it is hard to tell the difference between the, hey, I'm just asking questions, disingenuous shithead, and and the ones who are genuinely asking a question. But what I don't like is that people don't seem to be erring on the side of giving somebody the benefit of the doubt. In fact, they're angry at anybody who does that. It's not enough that they don't give somebody the benefit of the doubt. They, you know, declare you the enemy if you do. And and that's when I think we're in a real, a real difficult situation. But you really caught me on the J.K. Rowling thing, because believe it or not, I haven't bothered to read
0: shit about that. I don't even ah. know what her actual comments are. Ah. Okay, keep it that way. Keep it that way, Lucian. Don't look at it. Don't go near it. I'm, I'm just not
1: I'm just not interested <laughs> in it because I've, I've never read any of her material. It was never important to me. I know yeah. people are all up in arms about it and it's like it's not
0: I I just Well, we won't we won't talk not, about it. It's then. not
1: really my my domain of culture
0: you know good keep it that way stay far (laughs) far far away from it (laughs) um what really surprised me about that interview with roush though was that the the most recent one that i had was the overwhelmingly positive response that it got from my audience and i'm sure that there are people who are mad about it if so that's fine i haven't heard from them dear listener if you're mad about it i want to hear from you that's the whole point of this thing. It's a conversation. But I was really surprised and delighted by the overwhelmingly positive response. And I think it's because people, there are there are some people who feel this deep sigh of relief when it's like, oh thank God I can be human again. I don't have to have I don't have to say all the right things in just the right way, or else I will be, you know ostracized and and I think a lot of people are living under this this terror and feeling of deep insecurity and people have to feel secure they're they're you know f- like fundamental you know decency as a human being if that's in question because they might say the slightly wrong thing online, then that, is such an incredibly toxic environment where where we just cannot proceed humanely if that's the case shame is is one of the most toxic emotions to just you know constantly impose on each other so
1: and yeah and it's become a real political tool but i feel like i i feel like you and i should correspond outside of this and talk about the idea of either a continuous book or a edited collection of essays to be titled Satanic Epistemology. I would love to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I just feel like it's so important to everything we do. And I feel like it's so consistent with the philosophy we're putting forward. Yeah. That this is how we explore questions of fact. I think it's it's absolutely fundamental and could be actually considered the core, really, I think, of our philosophy. I feel like people have an understanding sometimes of some of the peripheral Values, without understanding,
0: sometimes how they fully integrate in certain ways, like this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, no, I d- definitely. Let's let's talk about that off the air because I would be one hundred percent down with that for sure.
1: Yeah, and and I think there's a lot in in people's minds that get in the way uh, of of practicing this type of thinking, and you know, mm. I think one of those thoughts is that you have to take every claim equally seriously or respect it equally, regardless of its basis in empirical demonstration or anything. And that's simply not true either. It's not a free for all like, yep, yep. I, exactly. I, 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 don't, I don't know, I feel like there's there's so many basic fundamental points that I mean, seem basic, but once you lose sight of them, fuck you know, shit you, up
0: really fast.
1: Right, right. You you kind of have to go back to square one and start thinking all over again. I I, I feel like the Tao is 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 that kind of text where yes. When you've overcomplicated things in your mind, you look back at that and it says things that are so simplistic but profound, you know, yes. that that you you begin to rebuild your your basis of opera, of observation.
0: Yeah. No, the yeah, a a yeah the da- the I can't never say it say that say it one more time
1: now now I refuse to because maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong okay well fuck or, you or maybe or <laughs> maybe I reveal some kind of like uh
0: embarrassing midwest accent in my attempt to whatever to say it. I have an embarrassing southern <laughs> I have an embarrassing hick appalachian mountain accent that will come out so hard when I am exhausted like this you know a feat podcaster voice that you hear sometimes it will get ripped away and the Appalachian twang replaces it (laughs) (laughs) anyway um this has been great we've been going for about an hour and a half so we should wrap this up but Lucian as always it's a pleasure and uh we'll do this again soon see you at SatanCon oh yeah unfortunately I don't think I'll be there this year. Oh, you motherfucker. I know. I'm sorry. I'm good. I'm, listen, I'm having to do so many repairs on my house. Like, we're getting the foundation fixed. There's apparently like a, a fucking mold colony. We're having like so much bullshit is that we're having to pour money into on this property. So, I'm going to have to suck way more dicks. I'm going to have to like suck dicks at light speed to, to pay for all this bullshit. Also, everyone should go donate to my Patreon because that is legit like keeping me above water right now. So please, everyone, go give me a dollar. Um, <laughs> but okay. Well, this has been great and we'll talk soon. Great. Thank you so much. That is it for this show. The music is by 17. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. And as always... Hail Satan, and thanks for listening.